This audio recording is presented by City Church Orlando. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This is God's word. You may be seated. Again, welcome, Ted Sin. Glad that you're here. Um, On Monday, or sometime around there, maybe even Thursday, maybe even this morning, this passage, uh, this sermon was going to be all the way through verse 22, because I think that they go together. I think that there are some constant themes in there that kind of work together, but I was not figuring out a way to communicate all that was there in the time I have tonight, wanting to save as much energy, time, and excitement for the baptism as possible. And so I cut uh, the text in half, just going through verse 17, and I'm just going to give you the caveat that this is sermon one of two. Um, that most of my time and energy sort of went into trying to understand this together. And so now I might start slipping into talking about parts that I'm not even supposed to talk about tonight, but that's okay. And also there, there are ways in which this will be truncated. We'll just introduce ideas that need to be followed up on. We'll introduce statements, some of them even very shocking and very offensive that may or may not have the caveats drawn behind them so that We understand holistically what's going on. But over the next uh, two sermons, um, we'll get to all of that. Just so you know, the second sermon will be um, December 28th, because next week I'm not going to be preaching. We're just going to spend time together um, in our Christmas celebration as a family. So with that being said, let me pray, and uh, we'll get going. Lord Jesus, uh, we need thee every hour. This hour is no different. And Jesus, we always need to seek to diminish and have you increase. And this time is no different. And um, if you do not come and move and speak and teach and give understanding and give conviction and give encouragement and give repentance and give faith and give hope, then we're lost. So I pray that you would come and that you would move and you would use me, that you would love my friends. You would love them well. I pray that you would give us a more clear understanding of your purposes, your promises, your gospel, and your love. Lord, I'm not going to lie. Some of these things are shocking and hard, hard to hear. And uh, my heart is torn. So I just pray that you would give us the grace we need to understand these things. I pray that you would protect me from being judgmental. 
I pray that you'd protect me from unbelief. I pray that you would somehow use the next 22 to 25 minutes to cause us to love Jesus. Lord, there are some here tonight who don't yet know you. And I pray specifically for them that the grace of this passage might pierce deep into their hearts and they might find you to be beautiful. That they might agree with you with what your word says about them and me that we're sinners in desperate need of a savior. But the good news is that Advent is all about your coming. You're coming to save, to call, to redeem sinners. And Lord, there are crusty old religious people here like me who need to be reminded that your gospel is for broken, needy people, not people that are well. Lord, show us how to do this. Show us how to be this. Show me how to believe this, because I don't. But I desperately want to. Lord, I see incredible joy and feasting and delight in coming to understand this. And my heart, my self-righteous heart, is angry and frustrated and always questioning and in desperate need of you. Lord, would you please give us freedom tonight? Would you please give us rest tonight? Would you please give us joy tonight? Jesus, would you give us you? We don't even know what that means, but we need you. We need to be with you. We need to be in your presence. We need to be around you. We need you in us. We need to feed on you. We need to eat your flesh and drink your blood. These are difficult things and yet simple. So simple that they offend. Lord, I pray that you would come, that you would teach, you would counsel, you would befriend, you would love, you would transform, you would save. Your name we pray. Amen. Um, a hard passage uh, tonight, easy passage to be flippant and uh, angry about. A hard passage uh, to teach holistically. I just want to kind of walk through a couple of ideas with you, and um, and we'll be done. And I really, I just plan on stopping at six twenty-five because I'm most excited about the baptism. Um, and uh, I could use a tissue if somebody had one. I'm a, I'm a crier when I pray. It really has nothing to do with being emotional. But for some reason, like, when I really pray, I cry, which is a very freeing thing. And I think it's a pretty redemptive thing. But it's true. But at any rate, so if you pray with me <clears throat> for long periods of time, you'll notice that. And I would love to have the chance to pray with you all for long periods of time in the future. Some ongoing themes, okay? If you look at our passage in verse 13, it says he went out again beside the sea. And Mark is wanting to be rather redundant here. He's trying to give us a sense for what are the constant themes in the person, the work, and the ministry of Jesus. We're gonna find Jesus over and over walking around with crowds. The crowds are never repenting and believing. They're always getting in his way. 
We're going to find Jesus teaching all the time. And what we've learned so far is that teaching is his priority, but it is not exclusively so. In other words, Jesus, when he's told by Peter, you could really do some amazing things if you would just do a bunch of miracles. You could become incredibly popular and an amazing hero. And Jesus says, listen, that's not why I came. That's not why Advent happened. I came so that I might preach and teach the gospel. But when preaching and teaching the gospel, when he comes up against physical brokenness, he stops what he is doing and he meets the physical need and then he moves on with what is his priority in Mark, which is teaching. So again, we see Mark bringing up this reality that he's teaching them. And then we keep going and and some things that are redundant themes. We we found out last week that these five stories, starting in chapter two, there's five stories in a row that Mark lines up to let us know who the human opposition is for Jesus. That chapter one says his ultimate opposition, his ultimate enemy is Satan. But that Satan plays out his hatred of Satan plays out his deadly games on, in the physical sphere. And so what Mark is going to let us know five episodes in a row is that this ultimate spiritual enemy is going to get played out through the religious leaders of the Jewish nation. That that is going to be where Jesus faces human opposition. We see just like in chapter one, verses 16 and 20, when Jesus is passing along the side the Sea of Galilee, he's walking and he calls Simon and Andrew. And then he goes a little further and he calls James and John. So we see Jesus calling with incredible authority that the four fishermen just get up and leave everything in order to go and to be with Jesus. Same thing happens here. He calls to Levi, or who Matthew 9 indicates as Matthew himself. He calls Matthew or Levi, and it says that Levi just jumps up and leaves everything. And then what Levi is for us, he is a picture of repentance and faith. He is a picture of what Mark has already taught, that repentance is getting up and moving away from what you thought was going to bring you life. And faith is the idea of embracing Jesus and being with Jesus and believing that when you get there, his grace is enough to forgive you for your sins, to forgive you for trying to find life in created things, and that he will satisfy you. And so what we have in Levi is we have what we learned last week about the, the idea of faith. Faith was first mentioned last week, and it was mentioned as something that is so visible that Jesus was able to see it. Remember, he could discern the cynicism and the doubt in the hearts of the scribes, but he was able to see faith. Faith is this idea of I'm going to remove every obstacle in my way between me and Jesus. Because if I can get to him, he will provide me life like no other. And while I've been spending all of my time trying to gain life out of these created things, They have not satisfied me. They cannot satisfy me. I'm going to repent from these things. I'm going to turn from them and I'm going to go to Jesus believing that he will forgive me for my rebellion, but he will also receive me as a younger brother, a younger sister, and he will dote on me and love me and give me all that he has as the son of God. That's repentance and faith. And this is the kind of good news that we will share with others. Do you see this? Do you see how in our text, verse 15 He doesn't go and get Levi and say, I'm gonna come be with you and I'm gonna just bring a nice blessing over all that you're doing. It's not what he does. He doesn't call Levi to himself and say, let's go out into the mountains or into the wilderness and let's just go hang out there as a little sect or society that tries to stay away from the world. He takes Levi right back into his world, right back into his family and his friends 
and his peer group and the people that he works with and the people that he lives next to. And he says, my grace comes to you on its way to other people. And we're not gonna go to a far off country on a mission trip to proclaim the gospel. We're gonna go right back into the people that you're currently living life with. And you're gonna go tell them how trying to get life out of created things is not going to satisfy. And you're gonna tell them about me and how that does satisfy. And you see, if, if what we kind of constrain the gospel to, if we constrain it to just this idea, the set of theoretical principles of Jesus lived a perfect life for me, Jesus died a death for my sins because of the double imputation of God where he imputes my sin to him and his righteousness to me, that these theoretical truths, this is not the kind of stuff that you go to your current network of friends, family, and coworkers and tell them about this good news. But if you find life in Jesus... That's the kind of stuff you'll tell somebody about. When somebody's dead and needs to come to life, that's the kind of news worth telling. When someone can't hear and you know one that unstops deaf ears, that's when you'll go and tell somebody about the good news of the life that is ours in Christ. And so these are some of the ongoing themes that we see Mark picking up on again in our passage. But there is a radical, and I mean a radical new development tonight. And that radical new development is found in this, that Jesus pursues a tax collector and offers him a position in his cabinet. Do you hear what I just said? So far, lepers have come to him and he has been gracious and kind to them. A paralyzed man was brought by his friends to Jesus and he heals him. Jesus has already gone out and grabbed four of his disciples. He has 12 apostles. He has 12 men. They're gonna be on in the inner circle of his life that he's gonna teach how to do ministry, that he's gonna give everything he has to. And he picked four fishermen on the fringes of society, nowhere near religious success. But this is going even a step further, a radical step further. He goes to a tax collector and invites him to be on his cabinet. I mean, this is the big news right now, is it not? Obama creating his cabinet. Did you notice this week with Blagojevich, the governor from Illinois, who has been caught trying to sell Obama's old senator seat? And Obama can't get away from him fast enough. I mean, he cannot distance himself from Globoyevich fast enough. He cannot get away from him. And he's got, it's so confusing, and I don't follow politics well. And you should know, well, I won't say that. But it's like, it's so confusing the way he dices these words and you try to understand. But, but his whole point is that he has, he's trying to say, I have, I have no connection with that man. I'm trying to get away from that man. I don't want to be anywhere near that man. Incredible fraud, incredible abuse of power, unbelievable pride. But if you understand what a tax collector is, you will understand that Jesus would have gone directly to Globoyevich and asked him to be a part of his cabinet. That's radical. 
You see these tax collectors, the way Rome set up its government, the way that Rome would occupy a nation state is it would come in and it would exact some taxes for itself. There were some things they wanted to tax and they wanted to keep track of on their own, but they also had a way where they would take taxes from the Israelites and they would do it through a tax collector. And a tax collector is a man who would go to Rome and he would pay them a certain sum of money for the right to exact taxes in a certain place. And so our friend Levi has already gone to Rome and has already offered them some sum of money, some amount of money to have the right to tax right here by the Sea of Galilee. Most likely he's taxing fishermen as they come through with their fish. And after he pays, he prepays for the right to do this. He gets to keep everything he collects for the entire year. Historians both Jewish historians and Roman historians will talk about the incredible rebellion, cruelty, depravity, dishonesty of the tax collectors. That they would exact from men and women whatever they wanted, regardless of what the tax rate was. With incredibly cruel measures that some people, some women would be forced to pay with measures besides money. We get a a window into what the Pharisees think of tax collectors in Luke chapter 18. Jesus is telling a parable there in Luke chapter 18, and he's telling this parable to some people who trust in themselves for their own righteousness. That is to say, they think that they're good enough to earn a relationship with God instead of resting in the grace and the mercy and the righteousness that's given to us by faith in the gospel. And he tells this story of this Pharisee that's standing up proudly and pompously in the temple and is saying, God, I am so thankful that I am not, and he lists off what a tax collector is. He says, I'm so thankful that I'm not an extortioner or one who practices injustice or one who commits adultery could mean a wide array of sexual sins. I'm so glad I'm not like that tax collector over there. The picture turns to a tax collector beating his chest staying away and saying in incredible humility, I don't deserve anything and I'm a sinner. And Jesus says this incredible statement in Luke chapter 18 that the tax collector goes away justified before God and not the Pharisee. Because the humble will be exalted and the exalted will be humble. Do you see how shocking this is that when Jesus is putting his cabinet together, he makes room for this nasty, vile, repugnant, rebellious sinner. It comes up four times in our passage, in our passage. Tax collectors and sinners, tax collectors and sinners, tax collectors and sinners. And at the end, Jesus says this radical statement Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And what is incredibly offensive to the scribes of the Pharisees, to the opposition of Jesus, is not just that he would go to Levi and he would say, Levi, I'm calling you out of that lifestyle. I'm calling you out of that community. I want to call you into behaving rightly. He does not do that. Instead, he goes to Levi's house 
and allows Levi to make an amazing feast for him and all his tax collector and sinner friends. And so the problem metastasizes. It grows, it multiplies, it compounds. That this is going to be a regular habit of Jesus on earth to be more comfortable with rebellious sinners than religious do-gooders. I was thinking about in the book of Luke, I was thinking about all the places where this concept came up between Pharisees and tax collectors and sinners and, and the Pharisees being really angry at Jesus for receiving, which is a word for community, for receiving tax collectors and sinners into his presence and eating and drinking with them and carrying on with them and the accusations made against Jesus. And, and I thought of at least four passages that only Luke talks about. Matthew, Mark, and John do not mention them. At least four passages where this theme, where Jesus' statement that I came to call sinners, not the righteous, where he lives it out with integrity. There's the prostitute in Luke chapter seven in Simon the Pharisee's house. And Simon the Pharisee says in his mind, again, thinking, again, a sign for us in our religiosity is that we talk to ourselves and we talk to other people and we don't go talk to Jesus. But Simon says in his mind and in his heart, he says, does he not know that this woman is a sinner? And Jesus forgives her. He loves her. He sends her out and tells her to sin no more. In Luke chapter 15, the most, one of the most famous stories in all of the Bible, the story of what is known as the prodigal son. It's really the third chapter. It's the third section of three there. And if you read the very first verse of 15, it's because the Pharisees are angry at Jesus for hanging out and partying with tax collectors and sinners. And at the end of Luke chapter 15, it is the rebel. It is the reprobate. It is the one who decided to rebel against God by going away from him and denying him altogether that is brought into the feast, that is reconciled with, that has had grace given to him, that is back in relationship with the father. And it is the older brother who says he has never done anything wrong, who is angry outside of the party. And the story ends with the question in our minds, will that religious do-gooder enter into the kingdom and party with Jesus? And then I thought of Luke chapter 18. And Luke chapter 18 is the story I already told you about the Pharisee and the tax collector. And then I thought of Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19 is the story where my kids will know the name Zacchaeus because he's the wee little man. But Zacchaeus is the chief tax collector. You do not become the chief tax collector by playing it safe, playing it right, and playing it good. You just don't. Do you see how radical and shocking this is? This should really frustrate and offend us. And so the scribes of the Pharisees go to Jesus' disciples, and for the third time we read, why does he spend so much time with the tax collectors and the sinners? And in verse 17... It says this, and when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. 
I came, Advent, I took on the skin of a baby, I became human, I broke into history, not to summons the righteous, but sinners. And what Jesus is doing here is he is taking the two labels of the Pharisees and he's turning them upon their heads. That the Pharisees, when you read the literature of the Pharisees, they, they start from 150 BC and they move forward. So the, the Pharisees as a movement has been happening for a couple hundred years when Jesus is speaking to them at this moment. And in their literature, if you read it, they have, they have these three labels. They have the righteous, the unclean, and the sinner. The righteous are those who decide to join the Pharisees and give their entire life to trying to obey the law, believing that if they obey the law, that God will have to come and bring his kingdom to reward them for their obedience. The unclean are like our fishermen friends who Jesus called in chapter one. They're not necessarily incredibly rebellious against the Old Testament law or the law as the Pharisees describe it. They're just not really able to pursue it because they have worldly unclean jobs. But then there's the sinner. And the sinner is the one that says, I don't like your rules. I don't like your regulations. I'm not even sure there is a God. And if there is one, I don't think you know him. And I'm gonna go do whatever I want. And what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees is he's saying, listen, I'm the great physician. I'm the good shepherd. I came to seek and save the lost. I'm the savior of sinners, not those who declare themselves as being righteous. Do you understand these two groups? These two groups, what what you have to begin, what I have to begin to feel in my heart is that my self-righteous pride and judgment and my self-righteous arrogance and independence from God and hatred of his control and his authority in my life, that is just as repugnant as prostitution. And that's what Jesus is teaching here. He, he's not saying that no one who pursues righteousness according to the works of the law could ever be saved because the Apostle Paul is a great example of that not being the case. But the Apostle Paul came to the point in his life where he did not call himself the righteous. He called himself the chief of sinners. The Bible talks about these two options of rebellion over and over and over. One is encapsulated in the younger son in Luke 15. One is encapsulated in the older son in Luke 15. There's two ways to rebel against God. One is to say, the heck with your rules and your authority. I'm not even sure you exist. And the other is to say, I'm going to obey you so perfectly that you have to owe me whatever I want and I will then take you under my control instead of being under your control. But when my life starts to go bad, I'm going to be angry because that is not the deal. And there's these two options for rebelling against God. And let me tell you this, they're both wrong, they're both offensive, they're both rebellious, and they're both forgivable, and they're both within the scope of the grace and the mercy and the gospel of God. But Jesus is really clear that this older brother option is much more dangerous than this younger brother option because it's so subtle. 
In Matthew, Jesus very clearly says to the scribes and the Pharisees, the prostitutes and the tax collectors are entering the kingdom before you because you would not listen to John the Baptist. You would not repent and you would not believe because if what you're doing is establishing your own record for why God has to love you, God has to provide for you, God has to give you what you want, then you're never going to repent. You're never going to say you're wrong because it works against the self-salvation project of your legalism, my legalism. that there's something going on here. This is so subtle, but so dangerous that both of these are options of rebellion, but this option of the sinner is the one that Jesus seems to do better with in his gospel. And I think it's all wrapped up in a couple little words of what he said. Those who are well have no need. Jesus is saying this, I rescue needy people. The word for well could mean capable. It could mean pretty. It could mean rich. And these are trends that we as a capable, pretty, rich congregation, these are trends in the Bible that we had better grapple with. And they are these trends that the poor, the not so attractive, And the failures are the ones in the Bible who seem to get Jesus. Just something for me to grapple with in the present state of my life. And so I want you to know that both of these are inside the scope of the gospel. You have the Apostle Paul over here as the Pharisee of Pharisees. And you have Peter over here. You have Levi over here. You have Zacchaeus over here. These are both within the scope of God's grace and salvation, but this is a very dangerous option over here. It's like this. Yesterday I was um, so subtle. I was uh, cleaning the garage out, and uh, some of you are horribly offended to know that I haven't cleaned the garage out since I moved in, but I don't like to do something unless I'm going to do it well, and cleaning a garage includes the wet dry vac and includes some Clorox bleach and some other things. And um, so I finally found time yesterday to do that. And my four-year-old Braden, I mean, if you don't know Braden, he, he's at that age where he's just desperate to be with his dad. Some of it's that he's four and some of it's he's a boy. And he came out and he, he so desperately wanted to be with me, no matter what I was doing. And so unfortunately, the wet dry vac scares him to death. And it's hard to clean out a garage that hasn't been cleaned in 20 years without a wet dry vac. But... Um, he, uh, he kept asking for chores. So I'd be like, pick up that leaf and take it to the trash can. Pick up that rag and get it to the trash can as fast as you can. And then I, when he was not looking, I took a whole bunch of Q-tips, not sure why the Q-tips were out there, and I threw them on the floor and I uh, had the vac, central vac turned on. And I was like, Braden, I need you to get every one of these Q-tips to the trash can. He's like, okay. It's like Braveheart or something. I mean, he was like, this is great. And... Um, and after that, we, were, we had done a pretty good job. We were pretty close to being done. I said, Brayden, I want to tell you, I really appreciate your help. I appreciate you being here. You made this chore exciting and enjoyable for me. And I, I want to take you for a treat this afternoon. Whatever you want to do, I want to go do it with you. Because I just want to be with you because you want to be with me. And uh, he goes out celebrating. Dad's going to take me to Starbucks. Dad's going to take me to Starbucks. <laughs> and, um, and in come the two older sisters. Dad, we want to clean the garage. What can we do? 
we're here, we're your servants. <laughs> you see why this older brother works righteousness, self-righteousness stuff is so dangerous? Because they look so similar. That the one who has been loved by Jesus and the one who wants to be with Jesus is going to do stuff the older brothers do. But only the one is loving God and doing it because they want to be with him. And the other is doing it to use God to get what they want. We'll pick up here next week. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would show me the utter depth and grotesqueness of my sin, even if it's the nice stuff. Show me how desperately I need you so that I will define myself as a sinner, so that I can line myself up right with where you are going. You are a heat-seeking missile going after sinners so that you can save them, so you can redeem them, so that you can be everything. Lord, I completely understand this. You are the one that should get all of the glory. You are the one that should get all of the praise. You are the one who should be worshiped forever, not me. Teach me how to be a sinner that receives your grace and lives a life of love. In your name we pray, amen.